I encourage you, as we study through the book of Revelation, to read the book, especially cover to cover the best that you can. If you can't read uh, cover to cover of this book, read at least sections like 4 through 16. That's the second act in this book. And I think that the more that you read the book of Revelation, the more you'll understand it, the more you'll understand the drama of it. I've told you in the past that there are times that I come to this book with a great deal of frustration because it is often presented in a very systematic way that it's supposed to present a particular sort of eschatology. So most sermons I hear are about how my position is right and the other one is wrong. And I, I could have made that all of what we dealt with in chapter 7. But I really think if you just read the text again and again and just see what's there, you'll understand it. And when you meet a position that you don't exactly agree with, you'll understand why it falls flat. So I just encourage you, keep reading it. Keep reading the text. And that will help you greatly. And I pray this morning God will use this portion of his word to encourage us because the book of Revelation shows us that God's kingdom will come and his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The book of Revelation reveals that drama, how heaven's kingdom is coming to earth. And that drama is in four acts, four sections that are all set off by the phrase, in the Spirit, which points to a major section, a major prophetic vision of John the Apostle. It occurs in the first, fourth, seventeenth, and twenty-first chapters. And in the first act, Jesus demonstrated his rule in the church. He already rules among his people, yet they need motivation to repent of their evil deeds and seek the Lord wholeheartedly. And after the letters in the, to the first century churches in Asia Minor, Act 2 begins in chapter 4. And that is set in heaven. And it is in the second act that Christ initiates conflict to win back the earth from usurpers. Having received authority to do so from his father, he unleashes his wrath in increasing degrees in judgment. And in chapter 7, there's a break in the drama for some explanation before the drama is going to pick back up. That's where we find ourselves to pick everyone back up to speed as we go into the seventh chapter of Revelation. Let's ask for God's help as we study his word. Father, as we give ourselves and our attention to you and what you've said this morning, we pray that it would draw us away from this world. It would help us long to be with you in glory. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. A restaurant server handed the dessert menu to a couple and then announced the house special. Our award-winning chocolate porch pie is baked in a rich chocolate pie crust, served with homemade vanilla bean ice cream, and served with warm chocolate sauce. Now, is anyone hungry? Menus, brochures, free samples, they're all meant to do one thing. They all want to get us excited about experiencing 
more. And in a way, the second vision in Revelation 7 is meant to do the same thing. You see, we can get really content with our surroundings. Yet we're reminded in the gospel song, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. Yet too often the truth is that we are quite content in this world, especially with all the sights that dazzle. And this portion of Revelation 7 is meant to make us excited about something more. So in the drama of Act 2, Jesus Christ, the Lamb, bringing down judgment upon the earth, he having received the seven-sealed scroll, in chapter 6, he broke six of those seals. And what happened on all the earth was that the people of the earth all despaired at heaven's wrath. At the end of chapter 6, it closes with this question, who can stand? Chapter 7 begins after this. That is, after the sixth seal judgment, John had another prophetic vision. You see it in verse 1. I saw. And this vision concerned people on the earth. We go down to verse 9. And it says, after this, I looked. So this is a second prophetic vision, and it concerns people in heaven. So the first one is about people on earth. The second is about people in heaven. This chapter is two visions that interrupt the flow of the drama. One seal remains unbroken, the seventh seal. So why do we have chapter 7? We expect to, to see the drama, but we have a pause. Well, it's kind of like when a parent reads a story to a child, like the one you see on the screen here. As the story is told, a child may ask a question because he needs clarification about something or assurance that someone in the story is going to be okay. It's sort of like the interaction that's demonstrated in the movie Princess Bride, where a grandfather reads a book to his sick grandson. You see, here in Revelation 7, God is graciously pausing the drama to provide clarification for his people. In the first vision of chapter 7, he gives clarification in order to calm us by showing his care. God's servants on earth during the Great Tribulation will be protected from God's wrath. In the second vision of the second portion of the chapter, it's meant to excite us by showing us God's care. God's servants in heaven, coming out of the Great Tribulation, will be provided for. So now as we go to this second vision, we come to the third of seven windows into heaven in this book. In chapters 4 and 5, we went to heaven for the first time. There was the first window. In chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, we have the fifth seal with the saints under the altar, which was our second window into heaven. Now we come to the third. And we need to give our attention to what John saw in his prophetic vision. After this I looked, verse 9, and behold, look at this, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands. Three points this morning, the first of which is that John saw a great multitude of people 
in heaven, as it says in verse 9. And this description is meant to excite us. This great multitude had an inviting makeup. Notice how many were there. The verse says, a great multitude that no one could number. They were innumerable. They were innumerable. That's in contrast with the specific number of Israelites on the earth in the previous vision. Verse 4. This multitude is far greater in number than the other. You see, those in heaven are a great company which no human census can count. That goes to show us that heaven is big. You see, there aren't any capacity restrictions there as we have here on earth during the season of coronavirus. There is an innumerable multitude. Now, does that surprise you? I think it's too often true in our hearts that we underestimate how many will be in heaven. And we often underestimate because of how few we see around us. Young people, you feel this very acutely when you go to school because you see how quickly it is true that you are the only follower of Christ in your class. Perhaps there's a couple more. But overall, there are very few who follow the Lord Jesus Christ. I can remember back when I was your age, and I remember back quite fondly when I went to summer Christian camp. Because at camp, there were hundreds of other Christians my age. And when I went to camp, it was so encouraging to see other people my age who knew the Lord. Because as we are here, it can seem like very few. But having addressed our young people, Christian companionship isn't just a desire of the young, it's of the old as well. And we know this in particular because of holiday celebrations. The older you get, the more presents really don't mean anything to you. What matters in the holiday season are the people that surround the dinner table at Thanksgiving and at Christmas. And those holiday times are sweet times, in particular because the rest of the year is quiet and lonely at home by yourself. You see, it's not easy being old and alone, and especially when your spouse is gone. There are many, many saints who can look at this picture of heaven, at this great multitude, and think, that sounds so wonderful. All those people. Because day by day, by day, it's so quiet. It's so lonely. You see, God is graciously setting all these people before our eyes so that we long to be among them. Notice also who these are. Look at verse 9 again. A great multitude, some from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. Not only are they innumerable, they are international, multinational. This is in contrast to the one nation of Israel in the previous vision, verse 4. This great multitude is inclusive and diverse in its makeup. That's in contrast to the segregation of America's history. That's in contrast to the Darwinian theory of evolution, which argues for the superiority of certain human races. It's against 
Hitler's advance of the Aryan race as the master race and the disposal of the Jewish race. Those are disgusting realities of human history. But heaven's reality is inviting. And obviously given this picture of heaven, we may obviously conclude that there is no place for racism in the church of Jesus Christ. No place for racism. The call to love is Christ's love already makes that abundantly plain. But this picture of the great multitude in heaven furthers the point. Heaven is such a wonderful place because all the walls that are raised between people groups are gone. Now doesn't that description of people get you excited? That all those problems will be gone. You see, this great multitude has an inviting makeup. But also this great multitude had an attractive position. When we see them... Not only do we feel that we want to be numbered among them, but we also want to be in their shoes. We want to be in their position because they had privilege. Notice where it is that they stand. The great multitude standing before the throne and before the Lamb. That's in contrast to the wicked on earth who cry in despair. Who can stand? This multitude is standing in the very presence of God. Now, young people, look at your Bibles. This passage says that they are before the throne. Where is that throne? Where is it? Turn to chapter 4. It says in this in verse 2. Behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. You see, the throne is what locates the great multitude in heaven. But the text goes further to show that there is a focus in heaven. What is at the center of heaven? What is everything related to in heaven? It is all related and spoken of in relation to the one who is seated and the one who is slain. Again, we see God the Father and God the Son are positioned on the same podium of honor. And this book of Revelation continues to exalt Jesus Christ. And it does so by revealing his conquest to reclaim the earth. And it's going to do so repeatedly by making sure Christ is set alongside the Father. I want you to imagine how wonderful that will be. One day, the saints will stand before the Creator of all things and the one who was slain for our salvation. Today we stand at a distance. We stand at a distance. We're unable to see these realities of glory. But we look at descriptions of the saints like this and our hearts are meant to be drawn to heaven. We think of the psalmist who said in Psalm 84, that's what's on the front of your bulletin today. Psalm 84 too says, my soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. You see, God reveals this privileged position in heaven so that you and I will long to be there. This group was privileged. They also had purity. Notice what they wore. A great multitude clothed in white robes. You see, the apparel in heaven is decided. White robes. Now I must say, 
that three girls of mine make it particularly clear to me that people like to dress up because it's not uncommon for me to see my daughters wearing a princess costume and perhaps multiple costumes on a single day. But I must say that wearing an outfit is not something that just little girls like to do. I remember many years ago in pride putting on a team uniform. And that was a good memory, to put on the blue for my team. Many of you can remember the cap and gown that you wear and the tassel that you wear at a graduation service. And all these things go to show us the things that we wear excite us. In heaven, the robes are white, and they reflect the virtue of those who are clothed in them. That's the thought behind even what we find in the white dress that a bride wears on her wedding day. Because what she wears is a reflection of her purity of character. By God's grace, she has taken to heart that a man is to leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And that joining one man and one woman in marriage, that's God's plan. Not before marriage, not outside of marriage, but in marriage. And even so, those in heaven wear white. Now you see the cross-reference in the margin to Revelation chapter 3. Because this reference to white robes draws us back to the letters to the church at Sardis. Because this church heard Jesus talk to them about white robes. I encourage you to go back to Revelation 3, 4, underline it in the margin of chapter 7. Because this was the church that was dead. Overall, they lacked integrity, but there were a few who had integrity. Verse 4, you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. Their lives are not stained with sin. And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. And now Jesus, in the letters, holds out hope for the rest of the church who will hear, repent, and forsake their sin. For the one who conquers, he will be clothed thus in white garments. Now, brothers and sisters in the Lord, isn't it true that sin seems to wrap its tentacles around us and pull us down to the depths? Yet one day we will stand before the throne in white. One day we will no longer struggle with our conscience, conscience gnawing at us because God will complete His sanctifying work in us. That's something to look forward to. This great multitude had privilege and purity. Now notice, lastly, what they held. A great multitude with palm branches in their hands. And what's in their hands indicates their situation. They're not in peril as those on the earth who were experiencing the wrath of God. They had peace. You see that in the margin with Leviticus 23, which tells us about the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles. And during that feast, the Israelites, who had been freed from Egypt and were wandering in the wilderness, they were to stop and they were to rest. And for seven days, they were to rest and rejoice because God had promised to provide His people with rest. And these palm branches point to the peace that comes because of the victory of God. 
a privileged position before the throne, purity and peace. All of these things are spoken so that our hearts would be drawn away from earth to the glories of heaven to be with God. That's why we have verse 9, to draw our attention to this great multitude of people, to long to be numbered there. But let's consider what these do in heaven as we turn to point number 2. Look at verse 10. A great multitude was crying with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So John heard a great multitude of people singing. What we find in this book of Revelation is that music plays a more prominent role in this book as compared to any other New Testament book. And that is because singing is how people express themselves in the most powerful way. We see that as we read that the multitude was crying out with a loud voice. They, with a united heart, were exploding in exaltation. What were they singing about? Young people, look at verse... 10. What was it that all these people were singing about? One word. Salvation. Salvation. These in heaven are singing about their personal experience. They have been saved. But what they are singing in heaven is a bit different than what you and I sing today. You and I sing about the fact that we've been born again that we've become children of God, that we've been freed from sin's penalty and more. But these have experienced something that you and I have not yet experienced. What's that? Well, I'll ask you two questions and you'll get the right answer. Number one, where are these people? Number two, how did they get to where they are? That's what they have experienced that we have not yet experienced. They're in heaven and they got there by dying. These people are singing about crossing the Jordan, as is often sung in the spirituals. They have experienced victory over death. So they sang about victory. And the way that John uses this word in the book of Revelation demonstrates this whole idea of salvation being related to victory. You see in the margin there, Revelation 12.10 and Revelation 19.1. Underline them both. And when you go and, and look at them, they show that in chapter 12 there is victory over the dragon. And in chapter 19 there is victory over Babylon. In both cases there's a winner, there's a loser. So, these in heaven are singing about their victory over death. Brothers and sisters in the Lord, imagine the joy that will come upon you when you open your eyes one day in glory, having closed your eyes here on earth in death. You see, death is the doorway to eternal life. And victory is the song of the great multitude. They have passed through death and come out on the other side in glory with eternal life. That's something to sing about. Now notice whom they sing to. Verse 10, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So they sang about victory and they sang to God and to the Lamb. And that is because God was the one 
who won their victory. God is the one who caused them to pass through death into life. Their victory over death was not won by their own efforts. No good works can bring you into the presence of God. Their salvation was wrought by God as the achievement of God, so they give credit where credit is due. And we see this kind of thing all the time, young people, on screens. You watch a movie, and then what happens when the movie's over? The credits roll. Because all the people who made the movie need to get credit for what they did. Or you're watching the game, and the announcer will say something like this, and here's a word from our sponsors. And then you get a couple commercials. Because those are the folks who financially supported the broadcast of the game. And we see this all over stadiums and arenas, logos and banners, because these are the people who financially support the teams. And even so, when it comes to deliverance from death and the gift of eternal life, it's all of God. And it's not just of God in general, but praise is given to both the Father and the Son. What has the Father done so that we would be saved? Well, God the Father planned redemption even before the foundation of the world. Our names, think of it, our names, first, middle, and last, were written in the book before the earth was created. The Father sent the Son to die in our place for our sin. So the Father and the Son receive credit for what they have done. And that is such a contrast to the earth because at the end of chapter 6, there was honor given to the Father and the Son, but it was because of the fear that came upon all those people because they realized that no one could stand before them. They were so great. Their wrath was so great. But here the Father and the Son are honored with rejoicing because of the great salvation that they have brought in these people's lives. John saw a great multitude. John heard a great multitude. And finally, John heard all the angels echoing the song, verses 11 and 12. And all the angels are standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they, the angels, fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. So the angels affirm the song of the great multitude. Now, it is true that angels have not themselves experienced salvation, but they still rejoice at the wonder of it. You remember what Jesus said in Luke 15, where Jesus said, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And they're rejoicing is meant to show us that they agree with the accuracy with what the multitude has sung. They're saying, what you just sang is right. It's true. Amen. Just like you hear amens in church services. That's right. That's true. Amen. And it's encouraging. Because it's nice when people agree with your opinion. You've been to a graduation service before, and of course, as everyone goes forward, you're supposed to applaud, but most of the time, the applause is half-hearted. But when it's your child, you stand, and you cheer, and you applaud, and you erupt. But you're the main one standing and doing all those things. But one day, all of heaven 
will erupt. There will be no pockets of cheering. All the angels are going to resonate with this song of salvation. And the angels are going to ascribe glory to God. The end of verse 12 says, Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. This is a sevenfold doxology, just like chapter 5, verse 12. Just changing out thanksgiving with wealth. But what this does is show that God has all these qualities, and he demonstrates them in the salvation of his people. And this salvation is so great that it deserves continual praise forever and ever. So as we've had this picture, this window into heaven... We're supposed to come away and say, wow, what a sight. Doesn't it make you excited? When you go to the restaurant, the server tries to tempt you with dessert by describing the reward-winning pie with its rich chocolate crust, its homemade ice cream, and warm chocolate sauce. And you just get hungry. And indeed, what Christ has done here is give us a sight of heaven so that we will long to be there. You say, how should I feel about all this? Let me read to you a quotation from the diary of David Brainerd. David Brainerd was a missionary to the American Indians in the mid-1700s. And I read for you from his entry, dated the Lord's Day, April 25, 1742. He says this, I have longed to join the angelic hosts in praise, wholly free from imperfection. Oh, the blessed moment hastens. All I want is to be more holy, more like my dear Lord. Oh, for sanctification. My very soul pants for the complete restoration of the blessed image of my Savior, that I may be fit for the blessed enjoyments and employments of the heavenly world. Farewell, vain world. My soul can bid adieu. My Savior's taught me to abandon you. While he thus lets me heavenly glories view, your beauties fade. My heart's no room for you. Father, we pray that you would graciously, in the hearts of your people, Cause us to have no room for the vanities around us, but to look with a fixed gaze at the glories of heaven and long to be there. Lord, would you help us to pray, Lord Jesus, come and take your bride away. Father, we we need grace to even pray those words, to have that in our hearts. But Father, we pray and We believe that you can affect those desires in our hearts for your glory. We thank you for revealing these truths about heaven and about the great multitude there. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.